Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Next week, should it please the king, we will return to our history of the service of song and do two or three sermons or something like that in the history of the service of song. But we have just a little bit more to do in this text. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. American evangelicalism places most of its emphasis upon what we would describe as the priesthood of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is Savior. And indeed, uh, we certainly would not begrudge that emphasis. For indeed, Jesus Christ has been crucified for sins and raised for our justification and this is indeed one of the great themes of all of scripture comparatively there is very little emphasis upon Christ's kingship there is the retaining of some of the vocabulary you will hear people uh, evangelicals talking about Jesus Christ as being king Indeed, there is probably no more common creed in all of the history of Christianity than that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is language of kingship. But it seems as if there is very little content contained within those words, very little emphasis upon Jesus as king. And you can see this in the uh, questions that are raised in our present day. Debates over whether or not a man can take Jesus as his Savior without also taking him as Lord. Can I have Jesus as Savior and yet not obey him? Is there any such thing as a carnal Christian? In our day and age, I don't keep very close tabs on it, but there is a body of literature over uh, this matter. They call it, uh, on the one hand, uh, lordship salvation, and on the other they talk about uh, the possibility of people being carnal Christians, saved by Jesus Christ and yet not sanctified yet by him, saved by Jesus Christ and yet not obedient unto him. Things were very different during the time of the Reformation. The Reformation as a whole put a great stress upon the kingship of Jesus Christ, Lutheran and Reformed. But I would say that it was the Scottish Reformation that gave it its greatest development. The doctrine of the kingship of Christ was asserted with great vigor, it was asserted with a great consistency. The kingship of Jesus Christ was brought to bear on uh, the entire system of doctrine. So its relationship to all of the system of doctrine was developed. And it was very 
practically applied. No empty words concerning Jesus being uh, a king, but his kingship brought to bear upon the life of the church corporately and upon the life of believers individually. The Scots believed that Jesus Christ was the king and the head of the church. And in this they had uh, common ground with all of the reformers. But they began to become different in this regard. They believed, as did the reformers for the most part, that the king had given a law with respect to the government of his church and its ordinances. Almost all of the reformed reformers would have believed that. But the Scots were different in that they believed that no earthly power can alter the commandment of the king. That it cannot be taken away from, but neither are we free to add anything to it. The church has a king. The king has given his ruling and declaration and that cannot be changed by any earthly power. This was worked out um, in the Scottish Reformation, both the First and Second Reformations, in quite a bit of detail by her great theologians, but then put into practice primarily by her common people during the great conflict that transpired between the 1660s and the 1680s. After the restoration of the monarchy in the British Isles, it entered into the heart of the English kings to try to impose the Episcopal form of church government upon Presbyterian Scotland. They also tried to declare the king as the king and head of the church. By that I mean the British monarch as the king and head of the church. And then they went so far as to endeavor to remove the Presbyterian ministers from their charges and impose Episcopalian ministers. The Covenanters resisted all of this, not because they were more stubborn than other sorts of men, but because they saw all of this as being a usurpation of Christ's royal prerogative in the church. And they did not esteem themselves to be free to compromise Christ's royal prerogative, not in great things, not in small things, but here you had things great and small. You had great things. Christ was being dethroned and another put in his place the king of the British Isles and even small things the right of the congregational election had been taken away and they contested all of these things and they were willing to uh, contest these things at great personal expense to themselves when it was discovered that they were no longer attending the churches they would lose their goods their houses, their lands. They lived in the hills and in the moors. Summer and winter, great discomfort. They were no doubt cold and dirty and hungry. And they contended in this way for the kingship of Christ and his church. They were lowly and despised. Most of their leadership uh, during this period would suffer martyrdom. That's why I say this is primarily a common people movement. Most of their leaders would be either inaccessible to them most of the time or destroyed. These commoners, common people, were uh, in the eyes of the world something less than a commoner for the sake of the king. And a great many of them were persecuted unto the death, as if they were esteemed not even worthy of life in this world. As I was meditating upon these things, I thought about the the two Margarets tied to these two posts, and the younger being taunted 
concerning the older as the older was in her death throes she was drowning and they taunted her what do you think of her now it doesn't get any lower than this being uh, drowned to death lowly indeed and yet royal indeed were they not the world looks at them as being the lowest of the low and not even worthy of this life but the scriptures say that of such this world is not worthy and these are the princes and kings of the earth asserting the royal prerogative of Jesus Christ that young Margaret answered her persecutors in this way what do I see but Christ in one of his members wrestling there think you that we are the sufferers nay it is Christ in us for he sends none a warfare upon their own charges Christ in us contending the presence of the king and when we think of young Margaret who the world so very much despised does she not seem royal to us her calm composure especially to be a girl of such uh, youth her courage her strength I'll take no sinful oath I'm a child of Christ let me go there are thousands of such stories these are the kings who overcame the earth by their faith and they were neither the first nor the last but uh, a long line of believers in the history of the church and our text says that believers have royal privileges in their union with Jesus Christ that the great king is able to make us kings and priests unto our God look again at our text if you remember we have two principal parts or facets of this we have the declaration of Christ's worthiness to open the book and to reveal its contents and then we are given three reasons that demonstrate Christ's worthiness he had suffered unto the death he had redeemed a universal church to himself by his own blood and he had made his people kings and priests unto the living God last week we considered the priesthood of all believers and this week we consider the kingship of all believers and so here we have two statements and he has made us unto our God kings and we shall reign on the earth if you remember back to chapter 1 John had ascribed praise unto Jesus Christ calling him the prince of the kings of the earth and this prince of the kings of the earth is able to confer a kingship and royal privileges royal privileges to those who believe upon him another way of looking at this but very much to the same purpose we stand in a union with the king our kingship is derivative and secondary coming down to us from him but in our union with Jesus Christ we are called kings and he has made us kings unto our God and the text here says that we will reign with Christ on the earth normally when we think about the royal privileges of the believer we think about the life to come and the coming judgment that's not our principal concern this morning but it is very much true that at the final judgment we will be seated with the Lord Jesus Christ not to render our own verdicts and decisions but to concur with him in his and in some ways this is the great consummation of our royal privileges as the scriptures say know ye not that ye will judge men 
and angels on that great day. But our text highlights the fact that we will reign with him on the earth. As we go through this history, we will see sometimes in which the churches in ascendancy and even kings of the earth uh, yield willing submission to Jesus Christ and become his kingsmen, as it were. That's not our primary concern this morning either, even though that's true. But rather the fact that already in this world we have become part of the spiritual kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and that kingship some of its duties and privileges are exercised already in this world that brings us to our doctrine this morning the kingship of the believer is multifaceted and I wanted to spin this gem so that we might look at some of its facets First of all, as I mentioned, our kingship is a derivative kingship. We are kings, not in and of ourselves, but because we are united to the great king of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ. In your outline, you should have larger catechism 45, if you'll look there with me. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executed the office of a king and calling out of the world a people to himself, and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them, in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience, and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. I've endeavored to gather most of this material under three heads for our consideration. First of all, Christ as king defends his people, from his and their enemies. He restrains them and he conquers them. Second, he subdues the hearts of his people. And third, he governs his people visibly in this world by his word and spirit in the visible administration of the church. I'm not going to take these in this order exactly. But having looked at uh, the kingship of Jesus Christ, I wanted to talk about our participation in his kingship. And I wanted to start with those matters that touch us most immediately. How do we participate in his subduing of our hearts? And unhappily, all I can say is we participate negatively in that we resistant it is his part to subdue it is our part to resist and finally be subdued but this is his great work and in this he is greatly glorified we uh, are brought again to consider the nature of our own hearts as they are in and of themselves and we're reminded of the great scripture doctrine of our total depravity there is none that seeketh after God Romans 3 the uh, whole idea of seekers is a myth I'm not saying that people don't uh, seek after religion and that they are not vigorously trying to construct idols for themselves this they do in their fallen condition fallen men are very Religious, but this ought not to confuse us. They seek not the great God of heaven in and of themselves. Seek after idols, make an idol of themselves, but they do not seek the true and living God of heaven who is so opposite to the sins that they love. 
As a matter of fact, when we consider the teaching of Scripture, we get a very different picture. Sinful men are not seeking after God. They are running away from Him just as quickly as they can. They flee in the opposite direction. And we can't draw any other conclusion. Ephesians chapter 2 says that the chief business of fallen man is he is serving the lusts of his flesh and the desires of his mind. This is what he does. This is what he likes. And this is a direction of life that is most opposite to God. It is heading in the opposite direction. And we run that direction just as quickly as we can. Indeed, the scriptures portray us as not only wicked, but approving of others that do wickedness. And that we think it a very strange thing when others won't run with us to the same excess of riot. This is humanity running just as quickly as it can away from the living God. More, the scriptures portray this as an enmity. That sinful man lives in a violent hatred of God. And again, we must be careful that we are not confused. If you were to poll men on the street and ask them if they hate God, they would say no. But they've made peace with their idol, and then they put the name of God upon it. But when you begin to describe the true God of heaven, when you portray God as holy, hating sin and sinners hating their sinfulness and them if they continue in their impenitency. That his judgment concerning them is just and true. He's omniscient and he makes no mistake concerning them. That he is omnipotent and mighty to execute his judgment upon them and will destroy them in an eternal hell. And that for all of eternity being immutable, he will never change his mind concerning this. When you present this God... They hate that God very much. And you will see the natural enmity arise. Normally not in an expression of outright hatred, but rather in this way. Oh, I don't believe in that God. No, you don't. And you despise this God who is so opposite to uh, the sins that you love and opposite to you as a sinner. Sinful men live in a hostility with God. There is no clearer revelation of this in the history of mankind than in the cross of Christ. We see in this that sinful men hate God to such an extent that they would kill him if they could. And when he was incarnate and dwelt among us, they sought every opportunity to destroy him. To destroy him and his voice out of this world. You see why the larger catechism would talk about the necessity of Christ subduing sinners to himself and he does this by a grace that Calvinists have always described as irresistible and using that language we don't mean that we do not resist what we mean is that he overcomes all of our resistance and does effectually bring us to himself This is a doctrine that uh, in our day is very much maligned, despised and hated. The whole idea of God uh, laying hands upon sinners, as it were, and subduing them and converting them to himself by power, by his omnipotent power, is something that uh, evangelicals don't have very much taste for. But the older I get and the more I think upon it, the more I am very glad for it. As I have aged, I have come to know myself more and more and have come to discover that nothing less than an irresistible grace would do if my soul is to be saved. Because when I consider the history of my heart, it is a long history of resistance, opposition, I hear this word and I'm opposite to it. I'm resistant to it. It is, if it will, I will only be subdued by violence. A grace that must take me by violence as I resist all of the way. But it is an omnipotent love that overcomes all of our resistance and does effectually subdue us to himself. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 110. 
May the Lord grant unto us a spiritual sight of the King. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Here we have this glorious picture of God the Father. It's very similar to what we've had in Revelation. God the Father is sitting upon the throne, but he is not alone upon that throne. The Son and the Spirit are seated there with him as well. And so Father says to Son, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And then we get some language that certainly was uh, cryptic and mysterious to David, even when he was delivering this uh, prophecy, but so much clearer to us. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. The careful student of the Acts of the Apostles can hardly miss the significance of this statement. The rod of Christ's strength proceeding out of Zion. You remember how the Lord Jesus Christ talked about the evangelization of the world. And he said, first it will be here in Jerusalem. And then in Judea. And then in Samaria. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth. But that the rod of Christ's strength, the preaching of the gospel would start at Zion and proceed from there. And that Christ would rule in the uh, midst of his enemies primarily by his word. By the preaching of his everlasting gospel. And inasmuch as this preaching of the gospel has always been accompanied with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, it is rightly characterized as a strong rod. This is no flimsy rod, nor royal scepter that has been extended into the world of men, but a rod of great strength and power. And the Father has declared in conjunction with it that the Son will rule in the midst of his enemies, and rule he does. With respect to the reprobates, he subdues them by force. And we should not be deceived. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess and acknowledge him to be Lord to the glory of God the Father. Knees that will not bow willingly will be broken and they will bow nonetheless. And this uh, confession will be extorted and extracted from them. Jesus Christ is Lord. It is a strong rod indeed. But with respect to his people, his own people, his elect people, they are made willing in the day of his power. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. These are great words and glad words. Because although we resisted, we have been subdued. We were unwilling, but we have now been made a people willing in this the day of his power. The great Puritan commentator Samuel Clark, on commenting on this very cryptic language what does it mean to talk about the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning and the dew of Christ's youth Clark kept the acts of the apostles in view and saw this as being uh, those very first gospel declaration and the uh, youth of the church as it were at uh, Pentecost and in the days immediately following He thought of the beauties of holiness as being those first Christian assemblies as they united together in one spirit for prayer. And from the womb of the morning, that uh, fruitful womb as the gospel was first preached, 
and men and women were converted by the thousands. And this was Christ's youth, as it were, in the world, bringing with it, as the morning does, much dew, or many converts, a great many converts. Certainly a beautiful meditation and contemplation of the glory of our King. And that indeed was a great and glorious time when that rod began to be extended, no longer limited to Zion, but there planted in Zion with power and then extending from there to Judea and Samaria and out to the uttermost parts of the earth. When we consider that we have been thus subjugated, our part is to take shame for ourselves. It's good to remember from time to time what we were like when we were lost, when we were yet in our native condition. It is a great antidote to pride. Pride in the Christian begins to arise when we start to attribute Christ's work to ourselves. But we, uh, when we remember what we were like before Christ came to us, we're reminded of what we are when we're left to ourselves. Lost and undone, going from sin to sin, resistant and opposite to those things that are best for us. Resistant to the gospel, hating God and God's people, opposite to all that is called holiness. Even to the present time, we have not been left without memorials. The Lord has not been pleased to sanctify us perfectly. From time to time, he shows us what we yet are when left to ourselves. And when he withdraws the strength of his power, we quickly fade and fall away. I don't know if you remember our sermons on perseverance, but Christian, why is it that you persevere in the faith? It is not because of your own strength or power left to yourself. You would quickly fall away from the faith and perish. But he upholds us. The faith that he gave in the beginning, he maintains day by day. And we are reminded in our chapter on good works that even with respect to our good works, whatever is good in them, let us attribute that to Christ and the, and the working of His omnipotent Spirit in us. But inasmuch as they are mixed with many infirmities and sins, let us attribute that to ourselves and take shame to ourselves. And as we are humbled and debased by remembering ourselves, remembering what we are like when left to ourselves, our thanksgiving for our King and for His grace to us will be all the richer and all the sweeter. All will be attributed to His grace and not to ourselves. If anyone is going to boast, as Paul says, let him boast in the Lord. All of our redemption has been purposefully arranged and construed to humble fallen man and to glorify the Savior. And let it ever be so in our midst and in the secret places of our hearts. Second, Christ does rule over us by the government of his church and we are called upon to participate in this in some measure. We will never see the beauty and the glory of the visible church, its officers, its ordinances, its courts, if we lose sight of this, that Christ is reigning and ruling in our midst by means of these things. I do frequently pray that God will give us eyes of faith so that we might see him enthroned in our midst. Ecclesiology, when it becomes disjoined from Christ, is a cold and sterile business. 
at best. You consider the history of what has called itself Christianity and you'll see it quite clearly. In recent days, I have been reading through Philip Schaff's History of the Christian Church. I've been in the Middle Ages to use the adjectives cold and sterile for the church government hardly does it justice. It was no longer a creature of our Lord Jesus Christ at all, but a creature of man, and even a creature of the man of sin. Far from being useful in the cure and care of souls, destructive to souls. But Christ, the living Christ, the Christ that is even now seated at the right hand of the Father, rules over his church through his officers and ordinances. He rules us in this way. This is part of the of the tragedy of the current age. We've forgotten this great lesson of the Reformation. We've forgotten that Christ has given the church a government and that government is to be maintained. Little Flocky's not promised to be present in or bless anything else other than the government of his own appointment. But that he has promised to bless. Where two or three, and that's the officers of the church, are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst of them. But if we uh, construct our own, there is no promise of his act- activity or blessing in these things. And if Christ is not uh, reigning and ruling over his church in these things, the question very much becomes, who is? Who has seized the reins of power? Unhappily, it's not too different than the time of uh, the Middle Ages, where the most charismatic leaders rule over the church by rights and laws of their own prescribing. And there is very little of Christ at all in any of it. But our royal part, if we would act as kings in the earth, it's not to legislate and it's not to invent our own law. That's the king's prerogative. Our royal part is to see the king's law faithfully implemented exactly as he gave it, to maintain it in its structure and to maintain it in its spirit. To maintain the means, but also to keep an eye its distinctive, revealed ends. Which in general are, uh, as you well know, God's own glory, the glory of the Savior, and the edification of His people. We are going to uh, look at this more. We have an ongoing sermon series on ecclesiology, so we're going to look at this and the maintenance of the church, the visible church, in its details so that we might be faithful in our royal prerogative to implement uh, the government of the church as it's come from the hand of Christ. But I would have you remember two things. First, remember our fathers in the faith, the covenanters that have gone before us. There was hardly ever a period of time in the history of the church when believers showed themselves to be so very royal, so very regal, than when they were living in the midst of Bracken and Thorn and Briar, in the Moors and in the Marsh poor and suffering and despised and yet royal maintaining the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ submissive to his will in all things and well, ready and willing to lay down their lives even as they had laid aside their property in order to maintain that prerogative that's royalty not for us to be dressed in robes of purple or red and to sit upon golden thrones as they do in Rome but to submit ourselves fully to Christ whether that means prosperity or poverty 
whether that means being influential in government or being persecuted to the death by government we are royal inasmuch and to the extent that we submit ourselves to him and seek the faithful implementation of the government as he has set it up and ordained it but I'd also have you to remember uh, as I've said to you in times past let love keep no record of wrong but let us never forget the uh, lessons that we learned in our own conflict in leaving the uh, parent denomination I hope that our name and the name that we took for our congregation at the time will never be forgotten the reasons for it we took the word grace because we ever want to be a gospel centered congregation but we took the word liberty because we are Christ's freedmen when uh, ecclesiastical powers seek to usurp the authority of Jesus Christ and alter his form of government it is our royal part to stand with Christ and to maintain the form of government as it's come from his hands and we do our royal part when we don't compromise it not in things great and not in things small and so if we must suffer in some measure for that suffer ill treatment or harsh words at the hands of men then we submit ourselves to that with patience and we ought not to be surprised by it our king went out by the way of the cross and so will we we've been called upon to pick up our cross and to follow him so let us never forget the lessons that we learned in this place and one final point here in our doctrine we must also remember our part in the defense of the church Jesus Christ protects and defends his church from enemies he rules over all for the good of his people and that's a most comforting thought Christian there is nothing that touches you in this life that has not been purposely designed by him for your spiritual good and advancement and in this way his government is a very comforting thing the um, this world will uh, present many pains and difficulties and those uh, pains and difficulties can become extreme you might even say they can reach the extreme and yet the scripture assures us that all of these things are being orchestrated for our good for our spiritual profit and advancement and our Jesus is well able to protect us from our enemies and they will touch us no farther than he allows we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose we know this to be true and Christ is well able to protect and orchestrate things so that this is the final result we also have a part to play in Christ's kingship in this regard first of all we begin uh, with a humbling realization that we are nothing to withstand our enemies uh, should our enemies rise up against us we are nothing to resist them with respect to their external power and their ability to threaten the body when we consider the fact that we are sinners and ever tempted by the world and the devil we also recognize that we are nothing to withstand the spiritual threats the internal threats that the world presents and this is why we describe Christ as our rock our high tower our fortress our shield our defense because we cannot protect ourselves from these Christ is our defense he protects us and keeps us from our enemies but even while he does this great work that does not mean that he will not exercise us in the defense of his church in our family worship we have been going through the book of Joshua 
And God frequently tells them, he tells them over and over and over again that he himself will give them the promised land. And the victories belong to him. The book is arranged in such a way to convey that their victories are not by the force of their arms, but by the power of God. They do some of the most peculiar things that you might imagine from an invading army. They march around a city and blow trumpets and shout and the walls fall down. Hailstones fall out of heaven and destroy retreating armies. All has been purposefully arranged for the Israelites so that they will know and so that they will never forget that the great God of heaven, the captain of the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ, had conquered Canaan by the might of his own outstretched arm. But he did exercise his people. Sometimes he exercised them in small ways. March, blow trumpets, shout. Sometimes he he exercised them in great and terrifying ways. They're going up into the hill country to pursue the Anakims, the giants, and you will be victorious over them, but you must go and you must fight. And yet it was ever Christ's victory. An exercise for his people, but Christ's power. If I might speak a a word of uh, application in this regard, we might very well uh, face a time when there are external bodily threats again. Uh, Growing up in America, it can be a very difficult thing for us to imagine wars on our soil or imagine the uh, persecution of the church. But warfare is much more common in the history of mankind than peace. And uh, persecution of the church is a much more normal state than her peace. And so we ought not to be surprised if we are at some time or other persecuted, even in body, once again. And when that day comes whether it's in our generation or the generation of our children. And children, I do hope that you will tell your children there might come a time when uh, we have six commandment duties with respect to our brethren and we are studying means to save and preserve our own lives. This was true in the days of Joshua it was true in the days of covenant, the covenanters. It is true for a great many of our brethren scattered the world over right now. It can be true for us again. But in our present day, we are much more concerned about the internal spiritual threats that are uh, still presented by the devil, by the world, and by our own traitorous hearts. And with this, I want to uh, give you three points of admonition and warning. First of all, mind yourselves carefully as individuals. Beware of the allure of the world. And uh, don't be high-minded and don't be proud in your spirituality. You are a sinner We are drawn to the world like magnetic poles one to another. And so we should never be high-minded. As Paul says, if any man thinks that he stand, take heed lest he fall. We live in a spiritual war. And there is no safe place in this battlefield. And with this in, uh, in mind, I would remind you of the lessons probably the great lessons of the Proverbs. And if you will heed these things, you will do well to insulate yourself as you can from the temptations of the world. Beware of evil companions. And we're not to take unbelieving people close to the breast. We don't bring them close to our hearts. You will know unbelievers. You should be friendly with them. And you should work for their salvation. But you do not bring them in close to you, nor share the heart with them. 
that is no different than to bring a viper in close to your own destruction. And Solomon warns Rehoboam over and over again. Oh, and how things would have been different for Israel if Rehoboam had listened. Beware of evil companions. Beware of those who are quick to run to mischief. Steer clear of those. Someone. Give your attention to those who speak the word of God to you and that are going to be useful in helping you get to heaven. Second, and very much like the first, beware of the strange woman or the strange man. Unhappily, many when they read those early chapters of Proverbs think that the strange woman is only the prostitute, but it is not so. She is described as strange in the fact that she does not pertain to the young man. She is not a candidate for marriage. She is not a candidate for your affections. She is strange or alien to you in that regard. She is not of, um, as uh, the scripture says, she is not of like precious faith. When you read the scriptures, one of the great themes of the scripture, to which I think we are largely blind, I hope that recent sermons have helped. Um, Frequently in this world, the prosperity and progress of religion is frequently yoked to the contracting of good marriages. And the downfall of true and vital religion is frequently yoked to the contracting of bad marriages. And it always has been that way. Consider the the faithful sons of Seth, the sons of God, and what happened to them when they intermarried with the daughters of men. What happened to a vital religion in Israel when they would not uh, heed the Mosaic restrictions with respect to their marriages? It was the death and decay of religion in their midst and in their children. If we would have a godly seed after us let us give all care and attention to the contracting of good marriages for our children so that they might take yoke fellows that will be helpful in getting them and their children to heaven and let us keep that principally in view with respect to the power of the strange woman I would just have you consider Solomon knew the danger and it got him anyway. The wisest of all men. Samson was the strongest man who ever lived and it got him too. If you would win this battle, it will not be by might or by power, but by a wise retreat. Solomon tells Rehoboam, you want victory over the strange woman, stay away from her. Do not even walk down your street because if you walk down her street, she will have you. And Solomon knew by long experience. If you would be wise unto salvation in this regard, you will stay away from those that are not uh, appropriate marriages and avoid altogether getting your heart entangled with those that do not pertain to you. And finally, In the minding of the self, we must be careful not to set our heart upon this world and its goods. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. A house is a good thing. A car is a good thing. But we ought never to love these things in and of themselves. We can appreciate them as creature comforts, but we love the God who gave them. If you would make a good use of this world's goods, you will look at them as transparent things. When you look at it, you look through it to the God who gave it and give uh, thanks for him. But we are foolish if we love these things, foolish if we trust these things. Paul calls them uncertain riches. We love not these things, we trust not in these things, but in the living God who is the giver and sustainer of our lives. So we hold all of these things with open hands and we can uh, test our hearts with respect to this world's goods 
When things are taken away from you, are you able to say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Are you able to say with Paul, I know what it's like to be abased and I know what it is like to abound. I am able to live in all of these conditions through Christ who strengthens me. These are some practical tests with respect to our attitudes towards this world and its goods. I know that the world can be very tempting, but remember, Christ has made us kings unto our God. Romans chapter 6, we are no longer ruled by our fallen nature, but by the power of the omnipotent spirit, we rule over it. No longer reckon yourselves servants of sin, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, but rather dead to sin and alive to righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is an application of our kingship. So mind yourselves, but mind also one another. Are you your brother's keeper? Indeed, you are. I'll be brief here. Encourage one another in love and good works, especially as you see the day approaching. Be constantly exhorting one another. Strive one with another to advance in sanctification and holiness so that we might look more and more like our Jesus and glorify him as we ought. Advise one another in difficulties. We will uh, meet questions on a daily basis that we don't know the Bible answer to. They might be doctrinal, they might be practical, they might be both. You'd be wise to consult much one with another to get the answers to your questions. We have more knowledge and more wisdom together than we have individually. And finally, admonish one another with respect to sin. This requires a lot of wisdom, discretion, and judgment to do it in a way that actually edifies. But it is a Christian duty. We must learn how to admonish one another in a way that is actually helpful and edifying. So when you see your brother uh, struggle and stumble in sin, suffer not sin upon him, as Leviticus 19 says. And thou shalt in any wise uh, rebuke thy neighbor. And in that way be a help one to another. And finally, mind the life of the corporate body. We should be vigilant and ever watchful with respect to the things that affect us as a people, as a corporate entity. And I would just remind you of two things that are an ever-present duty and the things that are perhaps most destructive to us as a people. Beware of those who would sow division in the midst. That sowing of division is like that tongue that drops so many embers into kindling. And before you know it, there's a blaze in the church. Let us beware of sowing division ourselves by an indiscreet use of the tongue. But let us also stay far from those that sow division. This is a sin that is described as uh, hateful to God in the Proverbs. And the commandment of the Apostle Paul in the 16th of Romans is to mark those that cause divisions contrary to the teaching that you have received and avoid them. And also be vigilant upon any intrusion upon the kingly prerogative of Jesus Christ. This means that uh, you have a role to play, not just the office bearers. Uh, I've told you before that I do believe our court to be very careful in this regard. Careful not to say anything or do anything in the church unless we are sure that it can be proven from the word of God. But we are still just three men doing uh, what we can to understand the mind of Christ. This congregation has been called upon before as a congregation to maintain the kingly prerogative of Jesus Christ. And we must be vigilant because sometimes the intrusions can be very subtle. 
And beloved, it is always a fair question. And I do uh, pray by God's grace that I will never find it an offense. You can always ask me, Pastor, how is this proven from the Word of God? Why do we do this? How is this proven from, from the Word of God? That is always a fair question. Always. And, uh, and who knows, perhaps um, you might discover to us uh, an area in which we had not been walking circumspectly. The traditions of the elders can be very powerful things. And frequently we practice not so much because we are we learn something from the Word of God, but that's just always been that way. It is always a fair question. How is this proven from the Word of God? And let us not hesitate to ask. And I'll try to do my part by never being offended when the question is put. Let us take away just uh, one use. I thought that uh, we wouldn't be finished with our work this morning unless we talked about the manner of this kingship. Let us carry ourselves in a kingly manner, that is, serving the brethren. Kingship in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is a servant kingship. A peculiar sort of kingship. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whomsoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Our royal dignity will be found in a humble service. You remember the Lord Jesus after he washed the feet of the disciples called upon them to serve one another in like manner. And we should ever remember these words that the king and head of the church, when he appeared in the days of his flesh, came not to be served, but to serve. And then he calls upon us to imitate him in this regard. When we think about the officers of the church, we frequently think in terms of authority. But the scriptures are clear that authority has been given for the purpose of service. Do you, do you understand how, how radically different that is than the way that the uh, uh, kings and princes of the earth and most of the officers in the history of the church think about their authority? Most receive authority and they think what they might be, uh, what they might get by it and how they might be gainers by it. Paul picked up authority so that he might spend and be spent. 
for the welfare of others and in the service of others. Paul says, For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. Paul says that he could boast in the greatness of his authority. However, that authority was not given to destroy the souls of men, but given for the purpose, and it's a purpose clause, for the purpose of edification. That's 2 Corinthians 10, 8. And it's a word that has been ruined. I hope that we can revive it and remember its meaning. A minister, biblically, is a servant. That's what the word means. It's come to mean something like the guy who's in charge. Uh, but it ought, not to, it ought not to mean that. It ought to mean something like this is the principal servant. The guy whose job it is uh, to seek our spiritual benefit and welfare. Minister means servant or slave. And indeed, I, I do try to think of the ministry in that way, that I am the servant or slave of Jesus Christ for your sake, for your good, for your edification. We have been called upon to imitate the king in this regard. And he has said that he will reveal his kingly dignity in serving his church, even giving his life as a ransom for many. Let us make manifest our royal dignity in doing likewise. And children, I I would speak a word to you. If you're believers in Jesus Christ, this also applies. From the time that we are born, we are very selfish creatures. Nobody needs to teach us to be selfish. We just are. But if you would be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you play with your brothers and your sisters and other little children, you ought not to ask, how can I convince all of these little children to do what I would like to do? And it's fine to have preferences. You have things that you like to do. That's fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if you would be, uh, if you would be a son or a daughter of the king, you'll think, how can I serve these ones? What do they want to do? What makes them happy? And you will find that not only are you glorifying Jesus Christ in his kingship and showing yourself to be a true son and daughter of the king, but it will also bear a very pleasant and blessed fruit. You will find that you have peace both in your own mind and with all other little children. You see, the purpose, our purpose in this world is not to get what we want, but to give to others and to serve them. So I hope that you will uh, remember this. In the midst of your play, spiritual lessons are not easy to uh, remember, but that's the best time to remember them and to practice these things. If you practice them as children, by the time you become adults, they will become habits of mind and life. We have a theological word for this. It's sanctification and holiness. And in this, you will come to look like Jesus. Let us pray together.